Well, Merry Christmas. I do hope you do come out to the Christmas Eve service. We will have a, uh, a time of, with a lot of special music and uh, uh, a message on, that will help us get our centered for our Christmas celebrations. I don't know if uh, some of you saw this news story yesterday, but uh, in Washington State, there was an elementary teacher, uh, Rachel Uriski Pratt, and she received a special gift from one of her students. You know, on the last day before holidays, uh, she would often get gifts from students like chocolates or handmade notes or jewelry. But this year, she got a plastic bag filled with Lucky Charm marshmallows, and, and that was probably her favorite gift of the year. Uh, she, she tells her story a little bit like this. She says, you see, my, at my school, there's a, there's a free breakfast program for students who don't have breakfast before they come to, to school every day. And this kiddo wanted to get me something so badly but had nothing to give. So rather than give her nothing, the student collected a handful of marshmallows out of her breakfast cereal for several days and wrapped them up in the packaging from her utensils so that she could give her teacher a gift. This morning, I want to talk about giving gifts at Christmas, gifts that really matter. And uh, we're really going to be talking about gifts that come out of a heart of love. Actually, I'm going to actually be talking about the gift of love. And um, it's appropriate because the greatest gift that was ever given was a Christmas gift. It was a gift that we didn't deserve, one that we can never repay. We're told in John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the Bible, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that gift we know is the true meaning of Christmas. And in response to that gift, Hank Hanegraaff says this. He says, as followers of the one who gave himself for us, we ought to exult in the very notion of giving gifts to others. You know, the source of generosity that is truly radical is a gospel-transformed heart that has received the grace of God. Uh, Generosity is about far more than just giving gifts. It's really about expressions of grace. You know, it's not wrong to give gifts at Christmas, but as we're going to see today, what really matters is not so much the gift that's given as much as it is the heart behind the gift. And uh, so my theme for this morning is this, We should give our all for the one who gave his all for us, not as repayment, but out of a heart of gratitude. John says this, we love because he first loved us. God's love is the source of our love, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I'll be putting the text on the screen, so... Uh, You can look at it from there, probably easier because the lights are dim. But uh, this Christmas, you know, coming up to Christmas, I often read a devotional to kind of prepare my heart for Christmas. And this Christmas, I I picked up a devotional book by Sinclair Ferguson. 
And in this devotional, he had a chapter called Love Came... The book is called Love Came Down at Christmas. Uh, and, and what he does is he takes this chapter of 1 Corinthians and he applies all these statements, all of these descriptions of love to Christ. And Christ coming at Christmas is an example of the perfect kind of love that's described in this passage. In this devotional, one of the verses that kind of jumped out at me and and just fascinated me as I thought about it and just kind of meditated on it is is one we don't usually focus on when we talk about the love passage. But it's going to be my text for this morning, just this one verse. And that's 1 Corinthians 13.4, where we're told by Paul, if I gave all my possessions to the poor... And surrendered my body to the flames, but have not love, I have gained nothing. (laughs) You know, as you think about that, according to Paul, there's a kind of giving that though it may involve great cost on the part of the giver, nevertheless, in God's eyes, counts for nothing. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to take some time thinking about that. But first of all, I want to think about the, the sacrifices that have been made in the name of Christ. The, you know, Throughout church history, we think of many people who have made huge sacrifices for Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, in this devotional I'm reading, shared that one of, the sacri- one of the people's sacrifices that really stirred him when he was young was Jim Elliott's. And he came to know about Jim Elliot through Elizabeth Elliot's book, In the Shadow of the Almighty. And in this book, she shared about the sacrifices her husband had made as a missionary ministering to a remote tribe in Ecuador. He was eventually killed by the very people he was trying to reach out to. And in this book, she shares his famous quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, that's quite an amazing statement from someone who literally gave their life for Christ. And I I can't help but wonder how many people have been inspired by that statement throughout the years. That they're inspired to give all to Christ and to hold nothing back. You know, the things we do for ourselves produce temporary rewards, but what we do for Christ lasts forever. You know, a book uh, in our generation that has inspired me in a similar way is John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And in this book, he has a chapter entitled, Risk is Right, Better to Lose Your Life Than to Waste It. And he points out in this chapter that the greatest risk taper, take. Uh, uh, the greatest risk taker of all times might be the Apostle Paul. And, and he brings us into an event in his life. He says, picture him on his way to Jerusalem after years of suffering for Christ almost everywhere he went. He had bound himself by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He had collected money for the poor and he was going to see that it was delivered faithfully. He got as far as Caesarea and a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea And symbolically bound himself, his own hands and feet, with Paul's belt and said, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. 
When the believers heard this, they begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul said, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Piper goes on and says, Paul believed that this trip to Jerusalem was necessary for the cause of Christ. He did not know the details of what would happen there or what the outcome would be. Arrest and affliction for sure. It had been prophesied. (laughs) But then what? Death? Imprisonment? Banishment? No one knew. So what did they say to him? In verse 14 it says, When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. (laughs) Piper goes on and says, Paul's whole life was one stressful risk after another. Paul said in verse 23 of Acts, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. But as Piper says, says, Paul never knew in what form they would come or, or when they would come or by whom they would come. Paul had decided to risk his life in Jerusalem with the full knowledge of what that might be like. He had already endured uh, difficulties that had left him no doubt about what might happen in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians, he spells these out five times. The Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and robbers. I have faced dangers of my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I have faced dangers from men who claimed to be believers but were not. I have worked hard and and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for the churches. You know, what does this mean? He goes on and says it means that Paul never knew where the next blow was going to come from. Every day he risked his life for the cause of Christ. The roads weren't safe. The rivers weren't safe. His own people, the Jews, weren't safe. The Gentiles weren't safe. The cities weren't safe. The wilderness wasn't safe. The sea wasn't safe. And even the so-called Christian brothers weren't safe. Safety was a mirage. It didn't exist for the Apostle Paul. He had two choices, John Piper says, either to waste his life or to risk it. And he chose clearly, he says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Paul never knew what a day would hold, but the Calvary road beckoned him and he risked his life every day and this was right. Now, now that is commitment to a cause. That's a life of sacrifice. That is surrendering one body, one's body to the flames. Right? And it's not uncommon for people to hear about such heroic acts, to want to imitate them and to be committed like that. But the same Paul who made these incredible sacrifices said in the passage that we're looking at this morning that sacrifice is not enough. Sacrifice, even the ultimate sacrifice of giving up one's life, (laughs) is not enough. 
There's something more that God wants from his disciples than just sacrifice. You know, what a tragedy it would be to live a life of sacrifice like Jim Elliott or like Paul and have it not really matter. (laughs) Is that even a possibility? Doesn't sacrifice like that assume love? Well, apparently not always, because Paul says, if I give all my possessions to the poor, (laughs) give up everything I have, everything that I own, and if I surrender my body to the flames because of my commitments, right, but have not love, it gains me what? Nothing. Sinclair Ferguson points out that what Paul is describing here when he talks about giving up all of his possessions to the the poor was the very thing that Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do that he couldn't do. (laughs) You know, it, it, it would be a huge thing for us to part with our possessions. Most of the people I know would walk away from Christ if he asked them to do that. They would choose to walk away from Christ rather than depart with their possessions. I mean, if Jesus said to you, give up your home, give up your job, give up your savings account, give up your retirement plan, and follow me, would you do it? Now, Ferguson shared that a friend of his once attended a student conference where the speaker challenged the people to respond to each line of uh, of Francis Havergale's hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, with a loud, affirming yes. And so the group started off like this, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And they responded enthusiastically, yes. (laughs) Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise, yes. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Yes. (laughs) Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Yes. (laughs) Take my voice and let me sing. Always, only for my king. Yes. (laughs) Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Yes. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. And there was silence. And the students apparently had the integrity to realize at this point, professions of love were measurable. (laughs) And they were not apparently sure they loved Jesus enough to impoverish themselves for him. At that point, their enthusiastic response became self-revealing silence. But if they had said yes to that statement and really meant it, would that be proof positive that they loved? (laughs) According to Paul, no. Paul had given up everything for Christ. He was willing to even die for Christ. But even with that, he still recognized it was possible to make sacrifices like that, like he had made for Christ and still not love. In fact, before he made, met Christ, he was willing to die for his beliefs as a Jew. And he was, he was uh, fighting for what he believed in. But there was little love in his heart. 
And so he says here, if love is not there, then my sacrifices, even if it means giving up everything I own, or even if it means laying down my life for a cause, if love is not there, all the outward acts of a benevolence account for nothing if not accompanied by genuine love. <laughs> yes, it, you know, it's true, agape love always involves self-sacrificing, but self-sacrifice does not always come from love. You know, to quote Amy Carmichael, you can give without loving, <laughs> but you can't love without giving. <laughs> if you love, you have to give, but you can give and not love. And Paul here suggests that someone can give away all of his possessions, even sacrifice his his own life, give up his life to be burned for a cause he believes in, and do it without either love for God or love for the people being served. You know, and the question we come away with is, how could you have ever done that? How could you have given your all and and not done it out of a heart of love? And and, and Paul says, that's possible. Some people actually do it. Apparently, even the greatest good works can be done without love. I, I don't know if that statement's convicting to you as, as much as it is to me. That, that is really convicting to me because there's a lot that I do sometimes because I'm committed to Christ and I come away saying, did I really love? You know, there's lots of reasons that we make sacrifices. Reasons other than love. Many of them are selfish. <laughs> First, we, we can give to gain credit of some kind, to gain something. You know, there's a mindset in the church today that give and you'll be rewarded. You hear that all over the place. And actually, there's some biblical warrant for that. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. There is, there is some truth to that. If you give, you do get, and God rewards the giver. But too often, we've interpreted that to mean that we're going to get back more material blessing than what we give up. <laughs> and really, in such cases, it's often more about what we're going to get than what we're going to give. We're giving to get. <laughs> And we're giving without love. Secondly, our sacrifices can come out of a heart of fear. Some people feel like they haven't measured up in some way to something God wants of them. They feel like they, they have failed him in some way. They deserve his judgment. So they feel like they can, if they do enough good things to offset the bad things they have done, they can pay God off in some way. They can atone for their shortcomings. But if we could do that, that would make our actions self-justifying and make Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf unnecessary. Our self-sacrificing acts in this case would be more of a guilt payment than an act of love. They would be done more out of a heart of fear, more as a way of appeasing a God who's hard to please than real concern to help people and care about people or real concern to show love to God. We, we think we can buy God off, and if, but if we could buy God off, then Jesus wouldn't have even needed to die. Christ's death is a gift of grace, not something we deserve. So giving out of fear is not the right reason for making self-sacrificing choices. Thirdly, we can serve out of a sense of duty. 
And this might be the most common motive for giving. Timothy Keller said this. He says, we can serve out of a sense of duty because we feel like we have to, or we can serve out of a sense of beauty where we're so moved and inspired what God is up to that we desire to join God in making God's creation a more beautiful place through our giving. (laughs) And Keller points out that while many are giving out of a sense of obedience, and that's a good thing to do, we should give out of obedience if for no other reason. Often, he says, it leads to a sense of drudgery and guilt and irritation because we feel that we're being forced to do something whether we want to or not. And when we give out of a sense of beauty, we do so willingly, joyfully, and passionately because we're giving, our giving matches what our hearts long to share in. There's no beauty in duty. <laughs> when we give solely out of a sense of duty, we usually resent it. And, and who wants to receive the gift of obligation? You know, some people, when they give their gifts to the church, it's like they, they're legalistic about the amount they give, but they, they never have much joy in it. And sometimes when we do acts of charity to people around us, we, we do it for reasons other than joy <laughs> and love. Fourthly, sacrifices, our sacrifices can come out of a desire for recognition. We, can, we, we all tend to kind of compare ourselves with one another. We all want to come out on top. We want to be more generous and receive more recognition than those around us. fact is, this was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, a time when the, the church was in need and people were making huge sacrifices for one another and the Christians were selling everything they had so they could share with the people in need around them. We're told that there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property and he brought part of the money to the apostles claiming that it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. And then Peter said, Ananias... Why have you let Satan fill your heart? You've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. It was yours. You could do with what what you wanted. And after selling, the money was yours also to do with what you wish. You could give it away or you could keep it. That's no problem either way. But how could you do something like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. And what did he do? He, he gave a generous gift, but he gave it with the impression that he was giving his all when he was really holding some back for himself. Their sin was that they were trying to give the impression that they were sacrificing everything when they weren't. They apparently wanted others to think they gave the whole proceeds from their property sale Like others in the body had done, they wanted the same celebrity status that comes with that. And in reality, they were giving more to get recognition than from a heart of loving sacrifice. And and this act was judged very harshly by God because their hearts were wrong in this act of charity. You know, it's not unlike the well-to-do people who were giving gifts at the temple to be seen by others. An act of charity meant very little to them if they didn't get recognition for it. And and this caused Jesus to say to his disciples, when you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and on the streets to call attention to your acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. 
Don't even praise yourself for doing it. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Give secretly so your, your giving doesn't become about you. And, you know, we quickly forget that what we're giving up was just a gift of God to us in the first place. David recognized this when he said, Who am I and who are my people that we should give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. <laughs> we need to remember that giving is not some great achievement. It's merely sharing what we've already been given. And the point in all of this is that there may be generosity demonstrated by our gifts, and yet if they're given without love, they mean very little. The real focus of such practices is not God or others but self and either in the form of legalistic fear of like if you don't do this, if you're not showing love toward others, then you're going to be judged by it or or from the praise we think we're going to get because we've been charitable. And the motives in all these cases is still self-centeredness. In such cases, the gift we give is neither spiritual or loving. (laughs) You know, most people don't even begin to understand their motives and what they do. They, they often think that helping others in order to feel good about them, they're often helping others to feel good about themselves. Many times they get involved with others in an obsessive, controlling way because they actually are meeting their own needs, though they're deceiving themselves about it. We're usually the last to see our own self-absorption. And so we do our charitable acts for a number of reasons that have little to do with genuine compassion for others. Though their actions may be good, their motives are wrong, but Jesus is, but to Jesus, motive is everything. And so Jesus says, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward, all they're going to get. That means the reward they're going to get is the reputation they get right now from their fellow man. They're not going to gain a reputation from God. I love the story, I've shared it before, but Charles Spurgeon told about a king, a farmer, and a nobleman. He said, uh, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day, a gardener grew an enormous carrot. (laughs) And he took the carrot to the king, and he said, Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched and discern the man's heart. And so he, it, when he turned to go, the king said, Wait a minute, I have something for you too. You clearly are a good steward of the earth, and I want to give you a plot of land to f- freely as a gift so you can garden on it all you want. And the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, Wow, <laughs> if you get that for a carrot, What would you get if you gave the king something even better? And the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion and he bowed and said, My lord, I breed horses and this is one of the greatest horses I've ever bred and therefore I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned the man's heart and he said, Thank you. And he took the horse and he says, You're free to go. And the man was perplexed, and and he was disturbed, and he was upset. And the king said to him, let me explain something to you. He says, the gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. 
And, and, and when I go through that story, I think how often you and I approach God presenting our good deeds with the heart of the nobleman rather than the love-filled worship of our good king with the heart of the gardener. <laughs> our sacrifice can be a means of earning God's approval or it can be a desire uh, for the praise of men. It can be a, a matter of spiritual pride or it can be pain for sins. You know, God, I've done this for you. Now you owe me. But people who think that God owes them something because of what they've done don't realize how undeserving they are of the gifts that they've received from God, that they're just receiving gifts of God's grace. We, we can do what we can do for self-serving purposes, but God wants to give us to give our gifts for the same reason he gave his gift to us, because he loves. And so thirdly, real quickly, he says, uh, I want to say that the sacrifices that come from a heart of love are the ones that really matter. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he come to earth? Why did he follow through with commitment to the plan? It wasn't just commitment to a cause. It was because he loved. Why was he willing to live a life that ended on a cross? It was because he loves. Ferguson puts it this way. He says, The Creator became part of His creation. The Lord of glory came to His fallen earth to take upon Himself the consequences of the sin of the world. The Creator came to take upon Himself the consequences of the sin of the world. Why? Why did He come? Because He loved us. (laughs) And why did He love us? Because He loved us. You know, if we lose sight of that, he says, we'll never be able to love him properly. Perhaps we'll never love anyone properly, for until we've tasted of God's incredible love, we will never fully appreciate why love makes us willing to sacrifice everything. If we're going to live lovingly as well as sacrificially, we must look at the one who did both. Christ lived sacrificially, yes, but he also lived lovingly. And... uh, That's what made his sacrifice so great. You know, when I read that little devotional and got my mind going, I I came away from it thinking, you know, what do I want this next year to look like? (laughs) Came away saying, I need to love my wife more. You know, the woman God called me to serve till I die. I need more love for my family, I need more love for my church. I need more love for those around me who don't know Christ yet. I need more love for those going through hard times. (laughs) I need more love for those who are difficult to love. And and when I understand the depth of God's love for me, I'm not difficult to love, I know, but you know. (laughs) When I understand how much he loves me, I want to give, not out of a sense of duty, not out of just a choice to commit, but I want to give because I love. (laughs) I need to love so much more. In closing, um, Jim Sylvester just painted a picture of God's love. He said it this way. He said, A beautiful woman stood on a platform in front of an auctioneer. Vile, greedy men stood in front of her bidding for this prize of the slave market. 
A man walked by. He's observing all this. He had just sold an extremely valuable piece of property for a very large sum of money. And he was taken aback by what he saw unfolding before him. Unable to help himself, he entered into the bidding. Higher and higher the price went until, in a last desperate attempt, he bid the whole price of the land he had just sold and the bid held. He was signing the documents of ownership and the young woman, who was now very angry at being treated like she had been treated, just like an object being bought and sold by men, <laughs> was led over to him, and she lashed out in anger at him. She slapped him on the side of the face and scratched his face with her fingernails. Blood trickled down, and she spat on him. There was anger and defiance written all over her countenance. He then handed the papers that he had just signed to her and walked away down the road. She looked at the papers in her hand, and they read, free. He had signed the papers and made her free. He had paid an unbelievable price to do it, but he had done it. According to these papers, she was legally free, and he was broke. She now looked around at her frightening world. What's she going to do now? Where's she going to go? She was free, yes, but she was alone, unloved, surrounded by a cruel and dangerous world, and the only person who had ever showed her kindness and love was walking down the street away from her. She ran as fast as she could and caught up with him, and she threw herself on the ground and wrapped her arms around his legs and pleaded with him to let her go with him. That's the gospel. That was you and I on the auction block. Being sold to an enemy to be used and abused. Jesus paid an exorbitant price for our redemption. No one ever loved you as much as he did. There's no safer place in life than with him. There's no one more worthy of our love than he So serve him out of love, not out of obligation. We love each other because he first loved us. The best atmosphere and motivation for service is not duty, it's love. And God honors love as a motive for our service. He does not honor empty, unloving duty. This year, will you give back to the one who's given so much to you by loving him and loving his kingdom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just reflect on the importance of love behind all of our actions, behind even the the incredible sacrifices we make, we pray that you would so inspire us with your spirit in us as we live out the union of Christ. The one who loved like that is the one who is in us, enabling us to love. May we grow in our love for one another and for you. And may we not just be religious people serving you this coming year, but may we be people filled with hearts of gratitude and joy and love over what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.